The reading can be found on page 1004 of the Church Bibles. It's from Mark, chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Oh, Jennifer, thank you. Ingrid, thank you for your reading as well. Friends, good morning. It's really lovely to be here with you, to uh, be traveling up the hill at this stage on a Sunday morning and to be kind of waving uh, Holy Trinity Meal Brace goodbye in my rearview mirror and uh, racing my way up the hill. It seems quite timely this morning to be talking about the Sabbath because uh, just as I was leaving, my son was going rowing for the day. My wife is having to take Barney, our youngest, somewhere as well. So I feel a degree of hypocrisy standing here talking about the Sabbath on a day when most of my family won't be at church this morning anyway. Um, let me begin with a story. Do you know the story of a little girl who said to her mother, Mum, is God in the house? And mum thought for a moment, is God in the house? Of course he's in the house, she said. And the girl thought, well, if God's in the house, then is he in the kitchen? What do you think? Mum thought for a moment, if he's in the house, he's got to be in the kitchen. Uh, yes, said mum, uh, God's in the kitchen as well. And the girl said, well, if God's in the house, and if he's in the kitchen, uh, you know that marmalade jar over there without the top on, is God in the marmalade jar? 
Now, I know you're quite clever here at Baston Hill. You probably reflect on these things fairly regularly. And Mum thought, well, if he's in the house, uh, if he's in the kitchen, then he must be in the marmalade jar. And Mum said, yes, uh, God's in the marmalade jar. And then the girl slapped her hands on top of the jar. I've got him. <laughs> it's so easy to think that we can put Jesus in a box. I've got him. There's a danger that we become comfortable that we tame Jesus. We open up the pages of Scripture as we're doing this morning. We open up the story of our lives and we become over-familiar with this person of Jesus. And yet this morning, maybe we can be attentive to the teaching of Jesus in a new way this morning, to see that the kingdom of God, this good news that Jesus ushers in, is far bigger, is far greater, is far more life-changing and community shaping than we could ever imagine. As you put it here as a church, to be loving God and living his adventure. And with that in mind, we've got our reading this morning from Mark's Gospel, a reminder of what's going on in Mark. Mark's, in my mind anyway, a bit like a tabloid journalist. He's kind of telling really vivid stories of who Jesus is, of what life with Christ is like. This happened, and then suddenly this happened, and then this happened. Episode after episode after episode of those people whose lives will never be the same again. And this man, Jesus, who spoke to no more people in his lifetime than would fill the greenhouse meadow just down the road, even at our promotion party a few weeks ago, but who changed the world more than any person has ever done. I love how H.G. Wells put it, I'm a historian, I'm not a believer, but I have to confess as a historian, this penniless preacher from Galilee is irrevocably the very centre of history. And so here's a man you can't tame, here's a teaching you cannot contain. Unlike that little girl in the story, we can't say, I've got him, and tame the good news of Christ. So let me take us back firstly to these uh, readings from our story. Mark tells both of these stories with a very deliberate reason and puts them both together as a way of spelling out that Jesus' kingdom is far more life-changing than we might ever know. You can't tame him. That in the first episode, you've got Jesus walking through the cornfields. The disciples are in tow. It's a bit like a family walk that we have, and, and yet the kids probably aren't moaning in the background. But as they go, they're talking, aren't they? Jesus' teaching, as ever, seems to be on the hoof, on the walk, rather than always sitting in a synagogue. There are probably women and children following as well those whose lives have begun to be shaped by the good news of the kingdom of God. This adventure's for everyone. And as they walk, the disciples are picking some heads of corn. And as they do that, the Pharisees are watching on and saying, Jesus, you and your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. You're at work. Uh, you're letting them work. That's not allowed on the Sabbath. And you see, it was the Sabbath day. All work was forbidden. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, said the Old Testament law, the longest of the commandments. And by Jesus' day, the God-given Old Testament had been added to by a vast number of restrictive and often petty rules by the religious authorities. You could swallow vinegar on the Sabbath, for example, but you couldn't gurgle it. 
You could ride a donkey without breaking the Sabbath rules, but if you carried a whip to speed the donkey up, then you'd be guilty of laying a burden on it. Here's one for the women here, maybe. A woman couldn't look in the mirror on a Sabbath lest she see a grey hair and be tempted to pluck it out. <laughs> Do you see what had happened? Those religious leaders had begun to build fences of tradition in order to protect the law of God itself. Over time, the boundary line between God's actual commands and the human commentary on those had become one. And so the Pharisees are there saying, okay, Jesus, you're going a bit liberal. Sort your disciples out. Of course, they're not really here to give Jesus a lesson in theology, but rather to trick and to put down and to tame. And Jesus' answer is a mixture of cryptic and challenging. It kind of packs quite a punch as well. He says, look, back in David's time, that great king of old, when they were hungry and ate in need, they ate bread. They were part of something bigger, something life-changing. They weren't bound by the old rules and regulations that were meaningless. They were part of something new. And that new is breaking in today. In some ways, the second story that Mark tells isn't much different. Jesus is there, this time not in a cornfield, but in a synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand is there. You can picture the scene on one side, you've got the Pharisees, all the regulation and rules under the sun. On the other side is this ill man and everyone's looking on. This is pretty edgy stuff in the midst of a synagogue service. It feels like Jesus deliberately is kind of stirring up a hornet's nest. He could have waited till the next day. But there's something about the teaching and the life of Christ that brings freedom and life right here, right now. And then Jesus says to the man, stand up. It's as if Jesus is looking for one last ounce of humanity from the Pharisees. He's kind of looking for sympathy towards the stricken man. Isn't it interesting how prejudice so easily kills humanity? And then Jesus asks a question, which is lawful on the Sabbath, says Jesus, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? I mean, what do the Pharisees do? Phone a friend, ask the audience, 50-50. None of those options are open, and so they remain silent. It was no wonder they were silent. By the time Jesus was born, those Pharisees had developed a system of 613 laws. 365 negative commands, 248 positive ones. Again, so many of those were based around the Sabbath or around healing. A woman in childbirth might be helped on the Sabbath, isn't that kind? If a wall fell on someone, enough material could be cleared away to see if that person was dead or alive. If they were alive, then you could do a little bit of work to help them out. But if they were dead, leave them there. Don't pick up the stones. A fracture couldn't be attended to. A cut finger might be bandaged with a plain bandage, but not with ointment. And yet Jesus has always this untamable good news of the kingdom of God. This, oh my word, it can only be God which Jesus lived, speaks into that situation. Jesus looks at them in anger, says Mark, deeply distressed. And says, stretch out your hands. And with 
that simple words, the man is healed. And so you see, we've got these two stories, uh, these two Sabbaths, but only one outcome and only one saviour. It's no wonder that by the end of this story, the Pharisees sit down and plot to kill him because of what Jesus is saying. He does something that makes them so angry. So I want to reflect on what that might say to us. As I begun with, here's a Jesus you can't tame. It is a message that you can't put in a box and call safe. We see here writ large Jesus, the life changer and community shaper. This Jesus comes and changes everything. How did John put it when he was writing his gospel? I've come to give life and life in all its fullness. So here's the first way we might live this more fully today, as it says on the screen behind the, a Sabbath rest. Friends, I want to suggest that these stories speak to us about our Sabbaths. Over the history of the church, I'm not sure we fared much better than the Pharisees on how best to gloriously live out the gift of the Sabbath. So many generations from so many different cultures have managed to turn God's gift of Sabbath into a wearisome, day-long obstacle course of what we can and cannot do. Now let me be really clear, Jesus isn't saying that the Sabbath is irrelevant or passé. On the contrary, Jesus obeys the Sabbath faithfully while he's on earth. He's never going around saying, don't obey the Sabbath. But what he does is to reveal God's true intent and God's heart. The Sabbath is for goodness, is for life, is for the worship of God. God's gift of the Sabbath is for blessing, for healing, for rest, for recuperation, for worship. As Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. So are we living that today? You know, I think this is such an important witness of the church and our society around us. 30 years ago, if you walked into Shrewsbury Town Centre, there'd have been barely anything open. If you wanted to watch football, it might just be your local Sunday afternoon team having a kick around in the park. That's about it. But now, well, many of us are working on Sundays in our 24-7 society. It's a major shopping day. Town centres and shopping complexes are full to overloading. There's football and sport everywhere we see. And church, I want to encourage us that we are to live out the good news of the kingdom of God in the midst of a world that's forgotten how to rest. Now, the Sabbath is God's gift to us. Under the relentless pressure of modern society, how we need this is good for us physically and mentally. We find a proper perspective on life. We put God and not ourselves at the center of our existence. We remember that we're not indispensable. So I wonder what we might do as a church in our families, in our neighborhoods, to live this out more fully. You know, strangely, you may need to work hard to keep God's rest. I think this sort of Sabbath time doesn't just happen by mistake. 
Maybe for some of us, it's to guard our time. I know last week my wife and I sat down with our diaries for the next two months and just said, this is our Sabbath rest. This is our commitment to one another. Maybe it's by joining others in Sabbath rest. The gift of meals was so important to Jews on a Sabbath day. Like the picnic that's coming up to enjoy the gift of rest with one another. To enjoy God's in your rest too. To reclaim something of this gift in a society that's forgotten it. And yet as I finish, I want to say something of this life-changing message of Christ, this living free, isn't just in our use of Sabbath, but maybe in many other areas too. Whether there are areas of life where we might need to hear again this life-changing, this community-shaping impact of Christ. You know, there's something very comfortable about reducing Christianity to a list of do's and don'ts like the Pharisees did, wherever your list comes from. There are so many boundary markers that churches and cultures put in place. For some generations of Christians, it's been dancing or the color of your hair or the clothes that you might wear to church. For others, it might have been our preferred translation of the Bible, of what belonging to the life of a church, God's family, really looks like. For many today, it's the expectations that come of what church looks like and sounds like, the songs that we sing. The clothes that the vicar wears, the language that we use, and the tradition that comes with that. It's probably another talk, but I think it's the gift of those, and it's very much Tim's gift, isn't it, who help us to reimagine what church might look like in the future. Not to be wrongly bound by tradition, but set free into the fullness of God's. It's interesting how it's not just the Pharisees, but people of today who seek to put God in a box. And we quickly lose sight of Jesus, this life changer and tradition breaker. Here's how my favorite writer, John Altberg, puts it so much better than me, talking about how ineffective the do's and don'ts are at really helping people to live out the kingdom of God. This is what he says, boundary markers change from culture to culture. But the dynamic remains the same if people do not experience authentic transformation. Then their faith will deteriorate into a search for the boundary markers that masquerade as evidence of a changed life. Friends, Jesus came to bring authentic transformation, to change lives, to shape communities. The Pharisees knew all about God. And yet when standing face to face with him, they did not recognize him. But Jesus came to bring life, to transform from within, to transform lives, to shape communities in a way that the kingdom of God is coming. And so this week, in the heart of this church, for the sake of our town, for the transformation of our nation. My prayer, my longing, friends, is that we would be those who experience authentic transformation. At times this is uncomfortable. 
At times this may feel threatening and challenging. But Jesus came to bring life. And life in all its fullness. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we pray this week that we would be those who are transformed and shaped by you. And Lord, we pray particularly that you would help us to live in freedom. Break open our lives and the life of this church. And may this life-changing good news of the kingdom of God be our story.